And hello, everyone, and welcome to the second edition of our brand new podcast, Mideast News Brief, where we bring you the most important news and developments out of the Middle East. I am your host, Winston R. Holland. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes if you have not already. It will also be in the Google Play Store. Eventually, it has been submitted, but Google has to crawl it or whatever. But it'll be there eventually, hopefully by the time this podcast is published. If you subscribe on iTunes, and if you like it, please leave a review, but only if you like it, of course. And be sure to head over to MideastNewsBrief.com where you can subscribe, as well as get the transcripts of the shows and links to the articles and research discussed. I really don't like people taking my word for things, which is one of the things that bothers me most about talk radio. Some guy bloviating into a microphone really is proof of nothing. On this broadcast, however, I at least provide the links to the information I am using along with my bloviating. So I hope that's at least a little bit better. Uh, So we have a ton to get to this week, uh, including our pals over at Pal Watch, provide a report of the so-called moderate, Palestinian faction Fatah's Facebook activity, and, well, let's just say the results are terror-ifying. Also, Open Doors USA has come out with their yearly report on Christian persecution worldwide, and you can only imagine where countries in the Middle East rank. I mentioned last week that we'll get into some anti-Semitism in the good old U.S. of A. by our own elected leaders, which is beyond abhorrent. And Trump did talk some foreign policy at the State of the Union, so we, of course, will play some clips and we'll touch on some points there. Okay, first off, though, uh, as I mentioned last week, Israeli elections are coming up April 9th, and let's face it, if they were held today, Netanyahu would run the table. He's extremely popular and the polls are not even close, except an investigation into possible corruption charges could possibly cost him the election because, well, you know, here in America, it's really, really hard to get rid of a president. But, you know, he has to resign under pressure or be impeached, which requires a simple majority in the House of Representatives. But if you want to actually convict and remove the pres from office, that takes a two-thirds, yes, two-thirds majority in the Senate. Think about that. I mean, do you think what? ever see a two-thirds majority when it comes to impeaching a president again or, you know, when it comes to much legislation. I guess there are certain pieces of legislation here and there, but it's very difficult to get to a two-thirds majority, much less to get rid of a president. It would take a massive political revolution to get that many senators to agree on that, right? So, well, it's different in Israel. In the U.S., sitting presidents will likely not be indicted or prosecuted. They gotta get booted by the Senate. But in good old Israel, things are much different. I found this article on the American Thinker, February 3rd, titled Trump, Netanyahu, and the Witch Hunters, which it, it you know gets into a lot of the stuff with the Mueller investigation, all of that, this is not the scope of this broadcast. I will not be getting into American politics and all that wrangling. It's just something I'm not interested in. I didn't start this podcast for something I'm not going to do. I will be talking a lot about the United States in relation to the Middle East, but it's 
really not something of the scope of this podcast and something I really feel like messing with. There are a zillion other people that do that. I'm going to focus on what I'm interested in and what I told you guys I am going to be discussing on this broadcast. So Shula Romano Horing, an Israeli born and raised attorney who practices here in the U.S., wrote this. According to Israeli law, after an attorney general announces his intent to indict, a pre-indictment hearing requested by the defendant will begin, after which the final decision to indict will be made by the attorney general and a trial will follow. In previous high-profile criminal cases, the pre-indictment hearings took several months and even longer. In 2012, De- Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman managed to avoid obstruction of justice and money laundering charges after a hearing process lasted over a year. Remember, I quoted the Prime Minister's office last week as saying that a process that should take 20 months is being squeezed into a few days, basically due to pressure from the left wanting to see Netanyahu indicted before the election. Anyway, it it continues. In a past case against former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, the pre-indictment hearing in which evidence was put forth persuaded prosecutors to drop the case entirely. Okay, so here's where it gets really crazy. In Israel, you can actually arrest witnesses. Yes, witnesses, not just suspects. I couldn't find out how long for witnesses, but I do know suspects can be held for up to 75 days without being charged. Fathom that. Suspects can be held for up to 75 days without being charged. Here in the U.S., suspects can only be held for up to three days without being charged, and some states even shorter than that, like 20 hours or something. And so with that backdrop, here you have the Israeli government arresting Nur Hafez, who was the prime minister's spokesman, and holding him in detention for 15 days. And I quote, Under severe conditions, which included sleep deprivation, hundreds of flea bites, and a lack of access to immediate medical care. In the U.S., such detention would be found unconstitutional, and any testimony or evidence from such a witness would be inadmissible under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine, which is basically the idea that any evidence obtained by illegal means is not admissible in court, such as the police not having a warrant, and they search the house anyway, yet find real evidence uh, against the individual. So that's pretty horrendous, right? When the state can basically engage in torture of a citizen, and not just any regular guy off the street. This guy was high, I mean, high up there, prime minister spokesman, to get him to turn on a political foe. If they can do this to a man who held such a prominent position, I mean, what else can they do? I mean, can you imagine if they did this to to a Palestinian? But Netanyahu's guy, great, sick the fleas on him. Deprive him of sleep. It's truly sad, and I hope those heinous laws end up being changed. I love Israel, and I'm 100% committed to the right of the Jewish people to have their own state because it's really, 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 really dangerous for them not to have their own state. But this draconian law has got to go. I didn't talk much about... uh, 
Israeli-Palestinian issues last week, so I want to spend a little more time today on it. The first thing I want to get to is what came out of the Jerusalem Post this morning, a report titled, Israeli Watchdog to Facebook, Remove Abbas's Party Page. Exclusive! Now, remember, we're supposed to believe that in the regions that are carved out for a future Palestinian state, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, the Fatah Party, which rules the West Bank, is the, quote, moderate party, and Hamas, which rules Gaza, is the extreme party. They're the extreme party that Fatah has to rein in and try to figure out some way to make them peaceable enough so that we can have some kind of two-state solution in the future. Now, I'm sure Abbas loves that designation for Western media propaganda purposes, but at the same time, it is absolutely astonishing how they display in full view for anyone that's watching the most blatant pro-terrorism images, and they do it on their public Facebook page. What? Now, this is a long report, so I'm just going to hit some highlights. It will, of course, be linked to at midisnewsbrief.com if you would like to dig into the details, and you can see the, the images for yourself that they posted on Facebook. It's pretty disturbing. This is what... Uh, this is from the Jerusalem Post. An Israeli watchdog group has submitted a request to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg to close down Fatah's official Facebook page. In a letter sent to Zuckerberg Thursday and reviewed first by the Jerusalem Post, Palestinian Media Watch claimed that Palestinian terrorists carried out terrorist attacks in 2018, quote, influenced by Fatah's glorification of murder and its promotion of violence on its Facebook page. Let that sink in for a moment. Look, we talked about this last week, with how Fatah was honoring two murderers, quote, under the auspices of PA President Abbas, which, if you remember, at, at this ceremony, it was like the who's who of Abbas's leadership was there for their role in killing and murdering an Israeli soldier 40 years ago. Anyway, the article continues for quite a while, but let me point out a few of the pictures compiled in this report by Palestinian Media Watch. Ashraf Nawa murdered two colleagues, Kim Levengrand Yeheskel, 29, and Ziv Hajbi, 35. Fatah even glorified his work and even prayed for Allah's safety and protection on him while he hid for six weeks, I won't read the prayer, I don't consider it a valid prayer, to say the least, and then after he was killed by Israeli authorities on December 13th last year, Fatah called him a hero, martyr, and legend. And the report says, when Fatah honors a terrorist who murdered two of his, of his Israeli colleagues in cold blood, by publicizing on Facebook that he is a hero, a martyr, and a legend. It tells Palestinians that Fatah continues to support violence and terror against Israelis, said the senior analyst at Palestinian Media Watch and co-author of the report. Now think for a moment. Could you imagine? <laughs> Could you imagine what would happen if an IDF soldier murdered a Palestinian citizen in cold blood and then publicized it on their Facebook page, calling him a hero. How the international community would respond to that? 
th- there would be a, a worldwide uproar like we've never seen in our lives. Yet the Palestinians get a past. And what do we get? We get more resolutions against the only free country in the Middle East than all other countries in the world combined. And yes, the link for that info will be in the transcript. I mean, this includes countries like Iran and North Korea, North Korea, which, as we'll see in a minute with the Open Doors USA persecution report, North Korea is number one on the list for Christian persecution. Yet there are more resolutions against Israel in the UN than all other countries combined, including North Korea. And there is not persecution going on in Israel against Christians or any other group. In fact, it's a safe haven for religious minorities. You know it's anti-Semitism when a double standard is in place, when they have one set of rules for all the other countries of the world and another set of rules for Israel. That's when you know there's a double standard, period. Okay, so I'll go through a couple more examples before finishing off this report. It's 45 pages long and replete with example after example. And this is hardly my favorite topic in the world, but I think you're getting the idea. I, just, just a few more things from the report. Um, Ahmed Jarar, who murdered Rabbi Raziel Shavak, a father of six, in a drive-by shooting in January 2018. Abu Jihad, responsible for the murder of 125 people. Dalal Mugrabi, responsible for the murder of 37 people, including 12 children. Ali Hassan Salama, responsible for the murder of 11 at the Munich Olympics. And Kazo Okamoto, responsible for the murder of 24 people, most of them Puerto Rican tourists, tourists in the Lod Airport massacre. Being celebrated just last year. This whole report is from posts in 2008. So it's not like this is something from the 60s and 70s and now the PA is is moderate or whatever. This is the kind of stuff going through their Facebook page months ago. So I I feel for for the for the Jews and Arabs and everyone in Israel who have to live with this constant threat posed by this regime and the Palestinians who are raised in a culture that glorifies and honors murder, even in their own textbooks, that's another subject for another broadcast. It, it, it's truly, truly sad. Please, if you are a praying person, please continue to pray for this region. I, I'm not going to get into more examples, but you get the idea. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122, verse 6. Now, it is worth noting Facebook's initial response to the letter. Now, I don't personally trust Facebook any further than I could throw their corporate office, but I don't know their internal dealings, so who knows what the truth is here. But this is what their PR person said. A spokeswoman for Facebook said that the organizations, that to the organization's knowledge, Zuckerberg had not yet received PMW's letter, Palestinian Media Watch. But she told the Post that, quote, praise and support for terrorism is not allowed on Facebook, and we remove this type of content when it is reported to us. In this case, some of the content had already been reported and removed, she continued. 
we will continue to review any reports we receive and remove any content that violates our community standards. Now, here's what I'm wondering, Facebook. How does Fatah still have a Facebook page, but Alex Jones does not? If Jones was booted for supposedly violating their standards, the Fatah page should have been gone. Not just certain posts removed, but the whole page should have been gone a long, 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 long time ago. And regardless of how you feel about Jones, anything that he did is nothing compared to this gruesome glorification of violence, murder, and terror. I mean, are we really to believe Facebook knew nothing about this? I don't believe it for a second. It's not like Fatah, some obscure terrorist group running a Facebook page off their smartphone under a rock in Afghanistan. And really, honestly, I'm not surprised at all, considering their willingness to work with the Pakistani government to make sure no blasphemy seeps through their geographic safe space. There, there's, there's more on that. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty ominous that Facebook is basically willing to abandon its founding kind of standards of freedom of speech and free expression just so they can continue to work in a particular geographic area. It's, uh, it's truly sad. All right, so while we're continuing to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, uh, some much-needed enforcement of legislation that came out of the Knesset last year is actually being enacted soon. So that's, that's good news. But before that, though, back in December, Texas Senator Ted Cruz proposed a bill titled End Palestinian Terror Salaries Act of 2018. Let me just read a little bit of the main text of the bill because I alluded to this last, last time when I mentioned the Palestinians paying families of terrorists over $347 million a year. This bill seeks to help curb that. It says, uh, To impose sanctions with respect to any entity of the Palestinian Authority, the Palestine Liberation Organization, or any successor or affiliated organization that is responsible for providing payments to Palestinian terrorists imprisoned for committing acts of terrorism against citizens of Israel or the United States. The families of such terrorists or the families of Palestinian terrorists who died committing such acts of terrorism and for other purposes. Uh, the, bill, the bill then goes on to recap the Taylor Force Act, which, if you remember, was named after the Vanderbilt graduate student. And much more importantly, U.S. Army veteran uh, who was killed in March 2016 in Jaffa by a Palestinian terrorist. It also gives several interesting quotes from PA President Abbas, who is quoted multiple times as saying they will continue to pay their, quote, martyrs and their families even if they're down to their last cent, which is just truly remarkable. Calling brutal murderers martyrs. And we somehow think we can negotiate any kind of lasting peace with these people? You've probably heard the name Ari Fold. The bill mentions Ari because his killer's family is now receiving a monthly stipend from the PA. This is a sanity on an unassailable 
level. And it's almost funny, almost, to read how people online, and I'm sorry, I just, I do have a tendency to read comments. I think we all do, um, especially on these issues, to watch how people deflect when this barbarism is brought up. And then they, they deflect and they talk about Israelis stealing from the, stealing land from the Palestinians as if there is even some kind of moral equivalent if that was even true. Like, let's pretend that that's true. Israelis are stealing land from the Palestinians. Is there any moral equivalence between that and having a whole system of government that is set up to promote the murder of innocent people? It is kind of funny how we're open borders along the southern U.S. and southern Israel, but strict, strict, strict border hawks along the West Bank when we want to keep Jews out. Uh, Abbas has even said that no Israeli settler or soldier could remain in a future Palestinian state. Interesting. So, besides the obvious Jew-hating racism of such a statement, uh, he is promoting good old-fashioned ethnic cleansing. Like what happened in Gaza in 2006 where Jews were ripped out of their homes and transferred to Israel proper. I mean, what if Jews were to suggest the same thing? I mean, imagine for a moment if Benjamin Netanyahu came out and proudly declared, I will not accept the two-state solution unless all Arabs are transferred to the West Bank. Could you imagine the uproar? And rightly so. Yet the international community gives a boss a pass on this bigotry. It, it, It is beyond evil. So that's what is going on in the U.S. and then in Israel. Netanyahu is actually enacting what's called the deduction law, where Israel withholds funds to the PA equal to the amount that they dole out to terrorists and their families for rewarding the murder of innocent Israelis. Sounds reasonable. Uh, This is from the Jerusalem Post. The deduction law requires the defense ministry to present the security cabinet with a report on how much the PA paid terrorists in prison or the families of terrorists who were killed, and for the finance ministry to deduct that amount from the taxes and tariffs Israel collects for the PA. The defense ministry confirmed that it is in, quote, advanced stages of collecting the information in order to transfer the report to the security cabinet as required by law. Netanyahu said he will enact the law, Israel Hayom reported, but is concerned that it will destabilize the PA and is seeking a way to find a balance between the two elements. Also, they are gathering the data on how much the PA paid terrorists and their families in 2018 so they can withhold that money from the PA as well. You can't say that that's anything but reasonable. The Palestinian Authority, like I talked about last week and we've been talking about, it provides pensions, government stipends to families of terrorists. And the more damage you do, the more money you get. <laughs> it's just, it's absurd. It's on an absurd level in the international community. The, the United Nations treats the PA just like they're any other country. Of course, when you have countries like Iran and North Korea also admitted into the United Nations, I think that tells you something about the legitimacy of that institution. 
Okay, so uh, let's talk about the State of the Union for a few minutes. President Donald Trump hit some major foreign policy in the SOTU this past Tuesday, um, and I want to play some of that now in case you guys missed it. I'll pause it at various moments to comment, but I want to start off with his quick introduction to it toward the beginning of the speech, and then he doesn't actually you know, talk about that until much later, but kind of give you his attitude and kind of how he's, he's selling his desire to withdraw from these wars that have been going on forever. An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. Foolish wars, right? So that's how he is introducing this topic at the State of the Union. He doesn't get it till about actually get into it until about 45 minutes later. So let me now play where he gets into more of the details of his foreign policy views. Had to keep that in there. Just just love it. With Iraq in the not-too-distant past, I think he has a point there. We have to be very careful about what wars we engage in, what wars we stay in, how long that we're there for. These are real lives, real American lives. And I understand that service people, they sign up to fight, but they shouldn't be sent to fight unless it's absolutely necessary. For this reason, my administration... I remember sitting with astonishment as I saw that happen on television because the reality is is that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and Trump there was merely recognizing reality and he was also doing the very thing that every previous president before him, I believe starting with Bill Clinton, promised to do. So it's not like this was a left or right issue. This was something that multiple presidents had promised to do, and none of them, you know, Republican and Democrat, and none of them had delivered. And Trump said, you know what, I'm not going to listen to all of the all the naysayers and all the threats that are supposedly out there that, oh, if we do this, it's going to cause some big war in the Middle East, yada, yada. It was all baloney. It was all lies. He opens the embassy and everything's fine. But the reality is when the Knesset is there, that's where the prime minister lives, that's where the Supreme Court is. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Tel Aviv is not. So that was certainly a, a great decision and as an American and as a, as a Christian I felt uh, very very blessed to have a president that would lead the way to making that happen. Brave troops 
now been fighting in the Middle East <clears throat> for almost 19 years. Wow. In Afghanistan and Iraq, nearly 7,000 American heroes have given their lives. More than 52,000 Americans have been badly wounded. We have spent more than $7 trillion in fighting wars in the Middle East. As a candidate for president, I loudly pledged a new approach. Great nations do not fight endless wars. Boy, is that the truth. You even had both sides of the aisle standing up for that one. When I took office, ISIS controlled more than 20,000 square miles in Iraq and Syria just two years ago. Today, we have liberated virtually all of the territory from the grip of these bloodthirsty monsters. Now, as we work with our allies to destroy the remnants of ISIS, it is time to give our brave warriors in Syria a warm welcome home. I have also accelerated our negotiations to reach, if possible, a political settlement in Afghanistan. The opposing side is also very happy to be negotiating. Our troops have fought with unmatched valor, and thanks to their bravery, we are now able to pursue a possible political solution to this long and bloody conflict. I don't know how you have negotiations with the Taliban. I really, really don't. But I guess we will see. It's hard to imagine a, a terrorist group holding to anything. Now, if you can force a terrorist group some ways through different avenues, venues, kind of force them into a certain kind of behavior, well, that's one thing. But any kind of document signed especially, or is meaningless, in my opinion, with, with a terrorist group. So I don't know how they're going to do this, how we're going to exit Afghanistan and still be peace still be peace I'm not going to judge either way I'm going to wait and see but I do know we need some kind of exit strategy because we've been there for 19 years 19 years and how many Americans have died in this never-ending war that it's hard to know what even the benefits are of it so uh, I'm I'm with them on this I certainly want to see us exit Afghanistan, so we'll we'll kind of see what happens and, and how he does it. I think the State of the Union would be about as half as long without the clapping. Maybe maybe less. In Afghanistan, my administration is holding constructive talks with a number of Afghan groups, including the Taliban. As we make progress in these negotiations, 
we will be able to reduce our troops' presence and focus on counterterrorism, and we will indeed focus on counterterrorism. We do not know whether we'll achieve an agreement, but we do know that after two decades of war, the hour has come to at least try for peace, and the other side would like to do the same thing. It's time. friend and foe alike must never doubt this nation's power and will to defend our people. Eighteen years ago, violent terrorists attacked the USS Cole, and last month, American forces killed one of the leaders of that attack. to be joined tonight by Tom Wiberley, whose son. All right. So I, I think you get the idea. I think he has an exit strategy in place. I think he's going to attempt to employ it. And as you just heard, uh, he's going to try to get troop presence down, focus on ca- counterterrorism. So there, perhaps there is a way that we can exit Afghanistan and, you know, the country not implode on itself or something like that. I don't know, but we're going to have to wait and see. But we need some kind of plan. We don't need to be there for any other reasons, such as supporting the military industrial complex or any other countries that we've got a thing with or whatever. Like, we need to eventually exit. We are not the police of the world. We can't be everywhere around the world. Now, if if there are certain areas in Afghanistan we need to be to to protect certain things, that's one thing. But we got to have a plan in place to eventually, one day, maybe this year, get out of there. Okay, so while we're kind of camping out in that hallowed chamber, so when U.S. politicians, especially high-profile U.S. politicians make anti-Semitic statements, I tend to take notice, and we'll be reporting on it regularly. Here we have a sad story from the Daily Caller, and it really is sad. It really, really is sad. About Minnesota rep Ilan Omar, who, back in 2012, tweeted out something rather uh, disturbing, to say the least, I'm going to read it, and just imagine if you were a Jew. Let's say you're not a Jew, right? Just imagine if you were, or if you're listening to this and you are a Jew. How this would come across to you. Israel has hypnotized the world. May Allah awaken the people and help them to see the evil doings of Israel. Wow. Yes, this person is now serving in the United States, not the Palestinian, the United States Congress. So she was interviewed by CNN, and here's how she responded. They said to her, you wrote Israel has hypnotized the world. 
CNN host Poppy Harlow asked Omar, I wonder what your message is this morning to Jewish Americans who find that deeply offensive. She responds, that's, a really, that's really a regrettable way of expressing that. I don't know how my comments would be offensive to Jewish Americans. My comments precisely are addressing what was happening during the Gaza war, Omar said. I'm sorry, but this tweet sounds something like you would expect out of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Not a future U.S. congresswoman. And there's more here with Omar, actually, quite recently, at an event at the Center for American Progress this past Tuesday, February 5th. So this was recent. So that one was 2012. This one's February 5th, 2019. Omar was actually asked point blank about anti-Semitism. The Federalists reported this, and it says, When asked what she has, quote, learned about anti-Semitism from engaging in these debates, Omar did not address anti-Semitism or Jewish people. So listen to her response. She said, A lot of the conversation oftentimes is one that refuses really to separate, I think, discussions around the country and its policies, and when that is hatred for the people and their faith. She said after a long pause, I think I'm at a breaking point where we are starting to have a conversation about what it means to be a people that harbor hate and, um, and the kind of journey we could all be on in fighting against discrimination collectively while still having the freedom to debate foreign policy and not only think about how we engage our allies, but also how we criticize and hold them accountable. End quote. Okay, so what about anti-Semitism? <laughs> you were asked about anti-Semitism. Uh, I don't know about you, but that's a rather troubling statement. Why? Because she was dodging the question about anti-Semitism. And if she dodges the question about anti-Semitism, that tells me and should tell anybody else that she doesn't want to talk about anti-Semitism because anti-Semitism would be, if she shared her true views about anti-Semitism, then it would be rather unpopular with the most of the people in the United States, which is we are against anti-Semitism. So that to me is troubling when you're asked about anti-Semitism and you don't tackle it head on, but you dodge. I mean, what is that supposed to communicate? Why can't she say what she truly thinks about it? Why can't she hit it head on? But we really shouldn't be surprised when she has such inane views as blaming the United States' involvement around the world for an al-Shabaab terrorist attack on a Kenyan shopping mall, right? I mean, and even as recently as 2016, she wrote a letter to a judge asking for leniency for nine men accused of trying to join ISIS. The fact that someone with such a disdain for Israel she even said she chuckles at the idea of Israel being upheld as a democracy. And then a sympathy for our enemies, a sympathy for those trying to join the, the worst of the worst of the worst of terrorist groups. The fact that that person is serving in our Congress is simply astonishing. Pray for her and pray for our nation that we wake up and we get rid of these people. But, you know, if I'm being honest and if I'm being off the bullet points, who put her there? 
Who is she trying to placate? Who is she trying to ensure her reelection with? Her constituents. She's playing politics. Can she even, with her constituents in Minnesota, can she even come out and say that anti-Semitism is wrong? Can she come out and just flatly say that? Now, I'll be watching. I'll be looking to see if she ever does, and I will report it here if she does. Because I think that'll be, that would be even make it even more interesting, right? And I don't want to be unfair to her. I don't want her to be an anti-Semite because I have something against her. I don't. This is, it's just absolutely astonishing that someone like this is serving in our U.S. Congress. So, but again, she has a constituency that she has to placate. And the fact that there's that many people in one geographic area that she has to be careful with when it comes to not speaking against anti-Semitism. May God help us as a nation. Okay, so I am going to shift from that. There's actually more than that that I could talk about with her. There's even more documented stuff, and I might bring it up on subsequent broadcasts and, of course, any new stuff that she or anyone else says I'm going to try to bring up, including our favorite new Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who had a rather interesting conversation with the most anti-Semitic politician in Great Britain, Jeremy Corbyn, who said that they had a great conversation and it was wonderful and blah, 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 blah. Yet she she wants to claim Israeli heritage, she's not anti-Semitic, yada, yada, and she's chum with this guy is truly disturbing. So we can maybe get into that into another broadcast. I'm not going to get into into it here. I want to talk about actually a little bit of good news because, again, like I was referring to last week, bilateral relations between Israel and its Arab neighbors has truly moved into astonishing new heights. I could not be happier for Israel. I could not be happier for the region. I do believe it's going to promote peace, and it is promoting peace. So this is from uh, The Tower. UAE Minister of State, there is no enmity between us and the state of Israel. The article goes on to say, Zaki Anwar, I'm going to botch this, Nuseba or whatever. (laughs) You can read it for yourself at MideastNewsBrief.com. A minister of state in the UAE government said this week in an exclusive interview with Sorab Amari of the New York Post that, quote, there is no enmity between us and the state of Israel, a groundbreaking statement that would have been unthinkable in the not-so-distant past. He made the comments as Christian and Jewish leaders gathered in Abu Dhabi for the first-ever papal visit to the UAE and the Arabian Peninsula. I mean, wow. I mean, this really (laughs) would have been unthinkable not too long ago, but you've got a UAE minister of state coming out and just publicly saying without reservation, there's nothing, no issue between us and Israel. That is that is incredible. It's a blessing. It's something to celebrate. And it's encouragement for me to continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the Middle East, for the whole area. Uh, because, look, there, there are, we talked about a lot of bad news, right? And there's a lot of hatred and a lot of angst and a lot of, obviously, unfortunately, po- whole populations that are, that are grown and raised in hatred. But, but, never put it past God 
to bring good news to a region because that's what he does. He, he actually is in the good news business. That's what the gospel stands for is good news. And so while so much media attention and even the stuff that I do on here is sadly going to be bad news, even though I do think there was some good news mixed in with the bad news that I previously discussed, there is good news happening and on the horizon and coming. And so we're going to continue to talk about that. I don't know how long this is going to last (laughs) between Israel and its Arab neighbors, but I'm going to enjoy it as long as it does. So the article goes on to say, the Israel Project senior fellow, Julie Lenars, observed in an op-ed published on Tuesday in reaction to that, quote, the Pope's visit also comes at a time when the Arab world is increasingly engaging in a rapprochement with the global Jewish community, and in particular, Israel. The Emirati, she said, has been one of the leading exponents of this approach. It's great news, fellas. It's great news. Um, Not saying that there couldn't be anything nefarious mixed in with this or that they don't have other things going on in the shadows and in secret, but I am going to celebrate when Israel gets along with Arab neighbors and there is peace. Because peace is worth celebrating. So this is actually now back to some bad news, but Open Doors USA recently published their World Watch List, which is their yearly report of the top 50 countries where Christians face the most persecution. I don't want to downplay the persecution of other religious minorities, and I am fully aware of that very sad reality, but Open Doors is a Christian organization, and and as such, this is the focus of their research. The link to the full report, of course, will be at mideastnewsbrief.com if you would like to uh, read more of it. But before I get to actually the list, there are some very, very sad trends in this report highlighted that I'll briefly mention. Number one, the shocking reality of persecution against women. There was a disproportionate persecution of women over men. And sometimes women received double persecution, one for being a Christian and two for being a woman. It's nuanced and complex, and a lot of it is hidden, but they were able to to parse out some examples of this happening. Uh, Number two, Islamic oppression continues to impact millions of Christians. I'll get to this more in a minute. Number three, the world's two most populated countries rise on the world watch list. India is for the first time in the top 10, and China has jumped 16 spots from 43 to 27. I realize China is not in the Middle East, but if you've read much about this, they are actually dragging people of all religions into these re-education camps, and it's just, it's simply horrific. I, I expect to see China's number on that list continue to rise. Uh, China is not becoming a more tolerant nation at all. Number four, the spread of radical Islam across sub-Saharan Africa. I'm just going to quote directly from this one, and it says, while the violent excesses of ISIS and other Islamic militants have mostly disappeared from headlines from the Middle East, their loss of territory there means that fighters have dispersed to a larger number of countries, not only in the region, but increasingly into sub-Saharan Africa, their radical ideology has inspired or infiltrated numerous splinter groups such as Islamic State West Africa Province, 
a deadly group that broke away from Nigeria's Boko Haram that also enslaves Christian women and girls as an integral part of their strategy. What do you say to that? Pray, my friends. Pray. Listen, who would have thought that just, you know, when when ISIS burst out onto the scene, like we talked about last week, it, I mean, it seemed like they had such momentum, had such power, had such uh, a, a propaganda machine to recruit terrorists. It was like they were unstoppable, even though they, they were very stoppable. But they were spreading like crazy. And who would have thought that by now it, the, the caliphate's pretty much been snuffed out? So don't believe for a second that it has to stay this way. Pray, 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 and do whatever you can beyond prayer to help stop this from happening. Because prayer does work. I have seen it in my own life. Number five, more laws added to control religion. So tyranny is on the rise. Thanks in part to the technology integrated and to the device you're likely listening to the show on right now. If technology was ever a double-edged sword, it is today. And I mean, that's why China is actually testing a program right now, a social credit program, where they listen in on your smartphone all day, every day, and depending on what you say and do, your social credit score can go up or down. Say good things about the government, social credit score goes up. Say bad things about the government, your social credit score goes down. And there's even a Democrat uh, potential runner for president that wants to implement this, that wants to implement the Chinese social credit technology once it becomes available. Like, are you kidding me? That is, that is, this is tyranny. And we have someone who's toying with running for president, if he hasn't already actually announced. I forget his name, Andrew, something or other. Do not turn my country into a dictatorial regime. It doesn't tend to do well for the people in that country. So let me get to, this is the top 20 religious persecutors in the world. And it's relevant to this broadcast because this broadcast is about the Middle East and we'll see how many are actually actually from the Middle East are in the top 20. Number one, North, North Korea. And it also cites the reason or why, the why behind the oppression. So I'm going to say the name and then the why. So number one, North Korea, the reason is communist and post-communist oppression. Number two, Afghanistan, Islamic oppression. Number three, Somalia, Islamic oppression. Number four, Libya, Islamic oppression. Number five, Pakistan, Islamic oppression. Number six, Sudan, Islamic oppression. Number seven, Eritrea, dictatorial paranoia. Number eight, Yemen, Islamic oppression. Number nine, Iran, Islamic oppression. Number 10, India, religious nationalism. Number 11, Syria, Islamic oppression. Number 12, Nigeria, Islamic oppression. Number 13, Iraq, Islamic oppression. Number 14, Maldives. Oh, uh, Iraq? Whoa, I thought we liberated Iraq. I thought we turned Iraq into a free country. (sighs) Number 14, Maldives, Islamic oppression. Number 15, Saudi Arabia, Islamic oppression. Number 16, Egypt, Islamic oppression. Number 17, Uzbekistan, dictatorial paranoia. Number 18, Myanmar, religious nationalism. Number 19, Laos, communist and post-communist oppression. Number 20, Vietnam, communist and post-communist oppression. So 14 
out of the top 20 come from what source? I'll let you make that judgment. And Somalia, who our good friend and Congresswoman Ilham Omar is from, is number three on that list. Will she speak out against this systematic persecution going on in her home country? I'm not aware of it. Perhaps you've heard her, but I would doubt it. Now, look, I'm not going to say guilt by association. Just because she comes from Somalia, she's happy with all the persecution going on there. But given what we've already discussed, and given the fact that, at least to my knowledge, she has not come out and spoken against the religious persecution in her own country, I don't have any reason to think that she has a problem with it. So, what is the point of telling you all of this? Well, you know, I, I already mentioned prayer, uh, but for, for those listening that are believers, that there is a scripture in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that I believe is appropriate for this situation. It's in chapter 13, verse 2, and this is what it says. It says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Hebrews 13, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. We can't invade those countries and stop them from doing this, but we can invade spiritually and pray for those across the world suffering such horrific persecution. I know with my family, when we gather together to pray at night, I don't do this every time, but I try to remember and pray for those who are being persecuted and those who are in jail, that God will give them strength, that God will give them resolve, that God will give them courage, and that he'll rescue them from uh, from those difficult situations. So please, 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 if you're a praying person, pray for those that are being mistreated around the world. And you can get that report and get the link at midisnewsbrief.com, or you can just look up Open Doors USA, and you should be able to get it pretty quickly. So there was one more piece of <laughs> news that I thought was uh, actually kind of funny. This is from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, and it reads, News writing robots may be the future of Jewish news, according to a news writing robot. You know how I mentioned <laughs> last week that, uh, you know, I want to get to stories other than international wrangling, technology, agriculture, archaeology, you know, just different realms that aren't just geopolitical insanity. So this would be obviously fall under the technological realm. And I thought it was worth noting that, <laughs> that apparently uh, people like me and those on cable news are going to be put out of business and those who work in newspapers or whatever. But this is what it says. The article says, The New York Times reports that the Associated Press, Bloomberg News, and the Washington Post are all using artificial intelligence programs to write news stories. Such programs with names like Cyborg, Heliograph, and Birdie can, quote, spit out an immediate news story that includes the most pertinent facts and figures on something like earnings reports, high school football games, and earthquakes. According to the article, news writing robots are not a threat to human reporters, but free up reporters 
to do more valuable work. Which is exactly what a news writing robot would say, isn't it? And then they go on to say that at JTA, uh, they're testing their own robot reporter, Bert Cyberg. Not sure where they got the inspiration for Bert Cyberg from, Bert Nerney, I don't know, to help us with the kinds of Jewish stories that essentially write themselves. We programmed him with dozens of story templates like those below. If he plays his memory cards right, Bert might one day be <laughs> running this place. And it actually goes to uh, stories, uh, and it's really just a few sentences long that Bert, this news writing robot, actually spit out. So that will be interesting. It honestly doesn't surprise me a whole lot. Artificial intelligence is far beyond anybody like us know, unless you happen to be listening and you work at one of these AI places and you actually know this stuff, which is not 99, which is, yeah, not 99.999% of people. But I could see how that would be rather beneficial if I was a uh, head of a news agency. But if I was a reporter, I might be a bit nervous. But of course, the robot then says that, oh, don't worry about it. No, your job's not going to be in jeopardy. You'll be fine. You'll be freed up to do more valuable things. Yeah, like look for another job. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, come on. We, we know how business works. If certain people are no longer needed and the guys at the top can save money, they're going to get rid of the reporters. So I take no solace in the fact that a news writing robot told me that their ascendancy is not going to uh, kick me out of the business. All right, so I thought that was an interesting piece of news. And I want to now end the broadcast off with the quote of the week. This one is from Otto von Bismarck. He was the minister president of Prussia from 1862 to 1890. And in light of current events, Discussing endless wars like we talked about with the State of the Union today, I thought this quote was rather relevant. And this is what he said. Woe to the statesmen whose arguments for entering a war are not as convincing at its end as they were at the beginning. Woe to the statesmen whose arguments for entering a war are not as convincing at its end as they were at the beginning. And that will do it for this week's edition of Mideast News Brief. Be sure to check us out online at mideastnewsbrief.com where you can subscribe to the podcast as well as get the show notes and links to the articles discussed. Have a great week and I'll see you again here next time.